from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, should companies cut suppliers that don't cut emissions? The 15 startups vying for big money on carbon removal. 10 climate NGOs companies need to know. And how apparel brands can build sustainability into re-commerce. We're none the worse for wear this week on 350. It's April 29th, 2022, the cusp of May. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. And joining me as she does every week from Midland Park, New Jersey, the always fashionable Green Biz editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hi, Heather. Hello, Joel. I don't know I would call myself fashionable. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, well. Uh, yeah, I've as never seen as you are. I've never seen you not well put together, so I'm going to well, stick with with that. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, thank I'm, you. You know, who knows what we all do in the privacy of our uh, of our you know camera off uh, home offices, <laughs> but I'm going to go with with that. Um, yeah. How how are you this week? I'm pretty good. Uh, it. The weather has been weird here again. It kind of dipped back down into the 30s, which is a little odd. But uh, it, you know, it's it lots of beautiful, very um, pale green leaves appearing on the tree. So that that really sort of fragile looking green that appears in spring is um, all around us. It's nice on my walks. They're pale but, because they're they're new sprouts they're that new. are that have yet to go fully green. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, yep. That's the, the very fragile nature of them. So well, yeah, I think yeah. that's a metaphor for a lot of our listeners uh -huh. too. Uh huh. Right? How are you? How's it uh, going with you? I kind of laid low this week. Uh, just swore off meetings, which was quite mm. delightful in in favor of <laughs> trying to commit journalism. Um, working on a couple of different stories that I've just had trouble getting to, and so I'm excited uh, making progress. Uh, you know, doing lots of interviews, learning lots of things. Um, and uh, one of them is, is uh, I'm calling the secret life of ESG ratings, which mm. I'm hoping will come to a uh, uh, web browser near you in the next couple of weeks. So, um, so that's my story. Ooh. So, but um, that's a story for the future. Let's go to stories from the past in the week in review. So Heather, I want to start with a story that you uh, published this week uh, in the uh, Energy Weekly newsletter about big brands engaging suppliers on renewable energy. In other words, how some large companies are helping some of their smaller suppliers uh, cut their emissions and therefore the uh, the, the motherships, the larger companies' uh, 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 climate uh, or net zero commitments by helping the suppliers uh, embrace uh, re renewable energy. Um, talk a little bit about what's going on there. So we've written in the past about what Apple is doing. So about for about five years now, which it seems extraordinary <laughs> that it was that long ago, they uh, introduced a program to really encourage the their suppliers, the, the people in their um, manufacturing chain in particular, 
to switch to renewables. You know, so they their 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 thesis was they had you know Apple has a huge um, renewable energy commitment, renewable renewable electricity in in particular, and therefore um, they shouldn't get their suppliers on board. And so they've had a program in place for that period of time, um, and and. In that period of time, they've um, brought on 10 gigawatts. So that's like specifically committed by the Apple supply chain. Um, and now I have to be clear that this this is investments by the supply chain for the production dedicated to Apple. <laughs> so I don't I can't I can't say with any certainty that these folks have gone 100% renewable. I don't know what the actual metrics are there, but the point being that Apple has been really nudging. Um, is partners to do this 213 of them are are now have now made committed commitments to operate all of their apple related production on renewable electricity so um, and they've even even put it in place in china a 300 million dollar fund to help invest in projects that could um, help suppliers and also they've really been instrumental in helping navigate some of the regulatory challenges so apple's been doing this for a while um, but what was less clear to me was that there's some other big companies now falling into place um, that are doing the same thing. Walmart, two years ago, put uh, added something to its gigaton program that's focusing specifically on uh, electricity. And I think the most notable part of it, I mean, is they're doing a lot of education um, and the programs that I'm seeing from other companies are doing the same. But what's really notable about what Walmart is doing is they're trying to help these smaller organizations get together to procure renewable electricity, like these these aggregated power purchase agreements. We've heard of large corporations doing them. Now Walmart and, and Pepsi, Pepsi has just announced a similar program, are trying to get their value chain partners to do the same thing. And and their the, you know, again, their thesis is that it's the role of a larger organization to get involved and help. And so that's that's what's going on. Those are the the two big programs that I that I write about the most. There's also a similar one um, from 10 global pharmaceutical companies. They're kind of they took a different approach. They're coming together as an industry to address their suppliers together. The common denominator for the the PepsiCo and the pharma, um, and the Walmart and the pharmaceutical uh, industry programs is Schneider Electric. They they're really in there helping these companies do this. So I just thought it was um, super important to, to write about, given that scope three is so instrumental. I mean, the, the, the realization that you're not going to get there without these suppliers and that these suppliers don't necessarily have the resources. I think it, people are starting to wake up and actually address that. All right. And scope three, of course, are the supply chain emissions or the emissions found in companies' supply chains. I love the uh, pharmaceutical industry one. And I'm wondering why that's not more uh, frequently replicated. Um, but also, it seems like this has great potential at the regional level, like get, getting a bunch of companies, uh, a large company getting a bunch of smaller companies, whether they're suppliers or not. But, but let's say there's suppliers in, in, a, in a region like, say, Detroit, where you've got a whole uh, cluster of automotive suppliers. Uh, uh, you know, being able to do things at, at the regional level where you can actually aggregate from very specific uh, solar or wind uh, installations, um, so place-based aggregations. Have you seen anything like that? Well, so it's not all going to be, no, for, to be clear, none of these programs have yielded an actual PPA yet. 
of that nature. Uh-huh. Walmart is close, apparently. Um, don't know how close. And PepsiCo hopes to do one this year. But these, it's just, it's not just going to be power purchase agreements. Um, the, the, these programs are, are um, to your point about regional. So in some regions, there may be community solar programs that are appropriate that companies should invest in. There could be an actual renewable electricity product in the marketplace, depending on where you are um, and what region you're in. And the, the idea is to help these suppliers also understand those options as well and try to get them connected. So I don't think it's just going to be PPAs, although that's kind of the sexy, <laughs> the sexy headline generating part of it. But, you know, I mean, I guess just the general thesis in, being that these small companies don't necessarily know how to do it. How can they do it and how we, can we get them there? Well, uh, that brings us to a, a sort of related story that Associate Editor Jesse Klein did this week uh, on is it time uh, or when is it time, I guess, for uh, companies to leave their suppliers behind if they're not cutting emissions or meeting the mark on the emissions commitments uh, that uh, I guess the larger company is hoping their suppliers will make? Um, I, I thought that was this was a really interesting uh, question. You know, she, she calls it a carrot stick or scissors. Uh, because those are all three different uh, uh, tools, if you will. I love the illustration that uh, our creative director, Julia Van, did for this story. Um, you know, obviously, you can in- incentivize suppliers with carrots. You can, uh, I guess, beat them up with sticks by saying we're threatening, uh, uh, or, 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 I guess, I don't know what the sticks are relative to cutting, where you just say, all right, we're done. Let's move on to somebody else. Um, and it, it it seems that that's, uh, sort of similar to your story, sort of still nascent. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, in companies, you mentioned Walmart before. They're, uh, Jesse writes, they're still mostly focusing on the carrot part of this. Um, and, and so it's unclear, you know, how many companies have really, you know, cut things. But I, I do think that this is a uh, um, evolving story. Uh, she does write about uh, Cliff Bar, uh, Cliff Company, that... Uh, uh, at least envisions parting company with some suppliers that can't keep up with its goals. Uh, so, but I do think this is, uh, we should be looking, uh, hearing more about this. I'd be interested to hear, and I'd love to hear from any listeners uh, out there whose companies are actually cutting suppliers. What was your takeaway from this, Heather? Well, so I thought it was interesting. Um, Salesforce is, uh, you know, obviously a great example you've written about. Um, they've They've changed their procurement contracts to really, really make this part of this, you know, skin in the game. They have also been very uh, focused on the nudgy part of this, like, please do this, let's do this, you know. Um, But they do um, talk about, you know, there could be points at which something is, quote, particularly egregious, end quote. (laughs) I don't know what that means exactly. She doesn't give examples of uh, Amanda von Allman is the person that, that Jesse talked to for this one. But I, I think there's also a hint that in the contract negotiations that the, 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 the larger companies can make it tougher for the smaller companies if they don't. And I guess maybe that's the, the stick part of it. <laughs> so I, I feel like we're moving towards a stick, not necessarily the scissors yet. No, people aren't, aren't cutting, th- cutting them off. Um, you know, to your point, the cliff talks about a natural parting. <laughs> um, but this, you know, this brings up the larger question of, you know, what some organizations philosophically feel about climate change. And there are companies that don't 
you know, might not be on board and they might actually take themselves out, you know, as well. So I don't know. It's it's perplexing. I think I think it's important to note that a lot of the companies we've mentioned in 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 several of these stories now, um, you know, Walmart and Salesforce and uh, I think you mentioned PepsiCo and Schneider Electric and and uh, several of the ones that uh, that Jesse mentions are, are sort of, you know, with all due respect, the usual suspects. And the question is, is how much and how quickly uh, will this uh, uh, trickle down, I guess, is <laughs> to uh, other companies who haven't necessarily been the outspoken leaders. Oh, you mentioned Apple, too, of course. Um, yeah. That's, I think, when this stuff really starts to get the traction that that needs. Otherwise, they're they're still kind of, you know, disaggregated dots that aren't really moving uh, the needles at all. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of potential here in terms of of the PPAs that you wrote about and the and the scissors that Jesse writes about. So, I'm hoping that we can get beyond some of these, uh, uh, you know, usual suspects into the unusual suspects. I totally agree with you on that. I would be willing to bet that there are more companies doing this than we know about that are just not talking about it. Um, I, I mean, I'm kind of aware of, of, of at least two that just don't tend to make it public. Um, and it reminds me of when I used to cover security in the in the IT industry. No one wants to talk about their secret sauce, right? <laughs> so it could be just, it, we could be these programs could be coming into place and they might not just not be getting publicity. Yeah. Well, speaking of carrots and sticks, let's go to the third story. This one by senior editor Elsa Wenzel on uh, 10 climate NGOs that companies should know. And one of the things I liked about this piece is that they're not at all the obvious, you know, certainly not the big green groups, uh, Sierra Club, Friends of the Earth, NRDC, EDF, etc., these are um, tend to be smaller, more focused kinds of groups, as you so, who that we've uh, talked about and talked with uh, numerous times that have been very uh, leading the charge pretty much on shareholder advocacy, uh, among other among other things. Um, uh, Blue Green Alliance, uh, Center for Political Accountability, Clean Air Task Force. I thought this was a nice list to sort of bring to uh, the fore some other organizations that we don't often hear about. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I, I loved, I loved, I helped her figure out who we should include. And um, I don't know, were you allowed, allowed to say who we like? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so there were two that really stood out for me um, because they're, I think they're, things that I'm thinking about a lot right now, but this is the Center for Political Accountability. Um, I just, and I, I know you're thinking a lot about this as well. There is just so much, this is such a huge issue right now with where companies are spending their money and, you know, how they're publicly promoting action on climate while, you know, quiet, quietly, as, as Elsa puts it, quietly supporting sustainability saboteurs for public office. Um, but the, the work that they're doing to make this more transparent, like who's spending what, where, um, and to really, you know, showcase those that are walking the walk and those, or, you know, walking the talk and those that aren't walking the talk. Um, so I really, I really am going to be paying more attention to that organization and, um, Frankly, I'll, I'll pay attention to all ten. But the other one that I think about a lot is is the Southern Environmental Law Center, um, because 
you know, we tend to, you know, we're in, we're in the two big green zones, right? <laughs> you know, the, the coasts. And I, I feel like I need to personally spend more time thinking about the impact of climate change in, in the Southeast and, and places where um, the actions elsewhere are really having a, an, um, an impact and also where adoption is slower, um, you know, and it sort of, it, it, that speaks to the, to the whole uh, notion of a just transition. And I think they're really focused on, uh, the Southern Environmental Law Center is really focused on, on what, what's going on and, and what, what work should be happening and what work shouldn't be happening. Yeah, my, I think one of my favorites here is the Indigenous Environmental Network, um, which uh, I've known about for a while, but I'm really, really glad that uh, Elsa uh, elevated that one on this list. Um, uh, the work that they have been doing um, both in the U.S. with indigenous communities and, and, and what's called in, in Canada the First Nations um, has been, I think, really important in terms of uh, helping uh Organize uh, a lot of the tribes that are uh, uh, don't necessarily have those skills, and, uh, and 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 amplifying their voices and advocating for them uh, in a number of different ways, and and watching out. I mean, they're one of the uh, uh, the large, uh, I think, the biggest presence when it comes to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the tar sands pipelines and and some of the. Uh, oil and gas operations in the Permian Basin in the United States. Uh, this is a group that's uh, largely unsung that has been uh, doing really, really good work. So that's Elsa's list. Uh, I'd love to hear yours. What are the uh, NGOs that you think deserve more credit for their work with companies, large or small? Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Just drop us a note, 350 at greenbiz.com. Diana Anderson, Senior Editor at GreenBiz, where I cover the circular economy. And today I'm joined by Nellie Cohen, founder of the consultancy, Baleen, which is building circular product system for brands that are designed to reduce environmental footprint while generating revenue. Um, hi, Nellie. I'm excited to talk to you today because I'm a little bit obsessed with Risa, which you have some experience in. <laughs> That makes two of us. So thank you for having me. All right. So let's jump in. Before launching Baleen, um, you worked on circular economy initiatives, including Patagonia's Warn Well, Warnware <laughs> Resale Program. Um, can you share a little bit about making the pivot to consultancy? Yeah, I had a great run at Patagonia. I was there for almost nine years. And really, it actually took Warnware from its precursor, which was the Common Threads Partnership, which some of your listeners may recall was initially a, a closed loop recycling system for clothing, rebranded into Warnware, created a much more holistic program, learned a ton along the way. And after I had kids and the program was running, it felt like the right time for me to pivot away from a super intense high travel career at a brand that had also transitioned more into a management role and instead taking all those great learnings and start my own business where I could set hours that were 
a little more conducive for having small kids, reduce the amount of travel, which COVID took care of for everybody anyways, um, and, and sort of spread the, spread the Patagonia gospel about circularity. Um, so it was kind of a win-win and, and it worked really well for both my lifestyle and my career. And I, I've really been enjoying it. Yeah, so I have um, some specific questions about resale, but before we get to those, I'm curious if you can just share a little bit more about like how you work with brands at Baleen. Yeah, absolutely. So I I help I focus mostly in the apparel space because that is my background, and I am a I guess you would call like a boutique consultancy where I have only have a handful of clients at a time. And I work with them in mainly two areas. The first, which we'll talk about today, is in circularity system creation. Um, So that is helping a brand understand the landscape of what's out there, what their internal internal challenges um, or opportunities they have to leverage to create some sort of circularity system which primarily these days is resale, but could absolutely include repair and recycling components. And then additionally, I also regularly help clients establish sustainability frameworks, um, come up with reporting cadences and assist them in getting on their road often to environmental footprinting um, as part of that and including their circularity component within the context of their entire sustainability framework. Got it. Um, so you have a piece on greenbiz.com today, uh, which is titled resale is not changing our relationship with stuff. Here's why. Um, I'm very happy that we were able to publish the piece and in it, you write that most resale programs today aren't getting, are getting only half of the equation, right? Um, I'm curious from your experience, what do you think that companies can be doing better, uh, to get the other half of the equation, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a huge honor to be published on GreenBiz. So I, I appreciate the opportunity, um, to share my perspective on this. So I think like when we're talking about the equation for people who are listening, um, we're talking about the two components of resale, right? There's the inventory acquisition and then the sale of the inventory. So the sale of the inventory has been going great. Like everybody's seen the thread up reports. Companies are jumping on one after the other to build these um, re-commerce programs. We have, as as an apparel industry, we've done an incredible job of mainstreaming secondhand purchasing. Um, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody today across demographics who says, ooh, use clothing. I don't think I'm into it. Like that is a perspective of the past. And that is a huge win for sustainability. We have effectively removed the ick factor from buying used clothing, which is awesome. The part that we're not getting right yet as an industry is the transaction and how that's going down. So a lot of these programs that are that are launching today are focused on a financial model whereby the brand who runs the program does not actually generate revenue from the sale of their used item. Where these programs are generating the revenue from is when people who have participated use the gift card they were awarded for their participation, the, the, um, the sellers of the items take their gift card and they spend it with the brand 
almost entirely always on new things for above the value of that gift card. So that means what these resale programs doing are actually perpetuating consumption, the exact thing that circularity is supposed to be addressing. And this is a big problem. Definitely. I mean, that's always something I'm thinking about whenever I cover like a new resale program or a new um, company that's trying to help enable um, resale for brands. I'm like, but is this going to kind of curb the consumption? And I feel like the answer right now feels like no. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so a lot of a lot of people listening right now might say, yeah, but it's keeping, it's keeping stuff out of the landfill. It's keeping stuff in use. Absolutely. And I think this is where perspective is really important. So if I'm looking at the perspective of this challenge as an individual, 100% it's great that I'm buying used. I mean, I think shopping is such a commonplace activity, dare I say, like a hobby, that anytime somebody makes the decision to buy an item used, whether they needed it or not, because we all shop more than we actually need things, it is good for the planet. It's good that that item has already been created and we're getting more miles per jacket. You know, we're wrangling more use out of that item. That is absolutely true. And I want to be clear on that. But if we're looking from the perspective of a brand participating in this economy, the problem is that that brand is not making the transition from that linear way of thinking and that linear way of acting to a circular way of existing, whereby the true measure of success, to your point, like, are we reducing consumption, is that a brand would engage in a program so strongly that they would be able to sell enough of their used items that they would start to displace some of the production of their new item because of the revenue generated from the sale of used. So we have talked about what companies can do to change and do better, but I want to go to a positive. Uh, what companies are doing resale right right now? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I first like I think any of the the um the Trove partnerships out there. So yes, Patagonia, um, Eileen Fisher, Arcteryx, REI, Levi's, Lululemon, like Trove has built an offering um whereby companies are actually generating revenue from from the sale of their use things. And that's awesome. There's also some brands out there who are building it in-house. Um, and running it in-house. So Ergo Baby, Apple, Lego, Mark Cross, Steo, Coach. There's a few out there doing it on their own, completely in-house, which I think makes a great point that it's not an insurmountable task to do this. And then where I'm really excited to see is there's some new development and, and sort of supply chains forming between technology providers um, and refurbishment um, providers as well. And I'm starting to see this transition, though, in addition to offering these um, what are called like peer-to-peer programs, they're starting to pivot and offer more fully managed resale programs, more in the blueprint of Trove. Um, and I think giving brands that, what's nice about this is it, is it, it kind of lets you like leapfrog and, you know, buy some off-the-shelf technology and, and check some boxes um, on the operational side and get things going a little faster in a program where the brand will start generating revenue um, from the sale of used things. Got it. I mean, because companies do still have to generate 
revenue for them to exist and be successful. Absolutely. Yeah. So something that you write a little bit about um, in your piece today is about measuring sustainability of resale. Can you just share a little bit about like what that actually looks like for a company? Yeah. So I thought when I was writing this piece, like I didn't want to come out and not give people some tools in their belt of like, how do I go about this? If this, if, if the way, if this trajectory is off, you know, if we're not changing people's relationship with stuff, um, how could we be doing a better job? Um, so I created a checklist and I think any company that's already engaged in resell or is considering it could, could run through this and then pretty quickly be able to tell if they're on the right track or not. So the first checkpoint is, will the operations of the resale program result in acquiring a level of inventory that enables the brand to transform its business from strictly linear to a linear circular hybrid? So by that, I mean, are you going to build, like, will your operations be able to scale to the point that you have meaningful number of, of items coming in that you can resale? Um, and are you, like, are you going to be able to put the effort into to acquiring those? The second um, item check is, do the economics of the resale program allow the brand to set sales targets that deliver meaningful revenue from the sales of used items that support the transformation to circular? So this is kind of what we've been talking about so far today, but um, like the unit economics have to work, right? Brands have to be making money off that sale of the used item so that they can actually set a sales goal with a revenue goal that while it's gonna be far, far smaller, uh, then their then their used items that, or excuse me then their new new item like their mainline sales goal you're trying to like grow these businesses in parallel and then can the resale business contribute to the brand's climate change reduction strategy and will the progress progress it contributes be reported transparently and publicly so this starts to get like a little into down into the depths of this but the idea right is that from an items perspective like the damage has already been done to the planet for making this thing. So the more times we sell it, the more revenue we generate from this from this item without growing the footprint does that thing that like we always like to say in, in sustainability circles, we're decoupling natural resources from revenue, right? In other words, we're breaking apart the need to um, use natural resources and, and pollute from actually generating revenue. So in other words, like a brand's footprint could stay relatively the same ideally, but revenue would, would increase because you're not putting as much resources into selling used things. And then lastly, does the resale program offer a variety of incentives for bringing clothing back so that people can decide if they need credits towards purchasing something new? And if gift cards and discount codes are to be used as incentives, may they be applied towards the purchase of used items? This one might actually be like the most implementable of all, especially for, for brands that are already in this space. So I think, and this kind of came from a personal, personal perspective, like when I'm going to resell something or donate something, like usually it's an effort to simplify my life. And I think we've all made a blind assumption that people want more stuff, or we've used that as a way to like sell these programs into the C-suite. But I think a lot of us could, would benefit from having fewer items of higher quality. So if we can give people the option to use that credit towards something else um, or donate it to a charity or buy something used, that in and of itself would be a huge shift. This was actually one of the hardest things we built with Warnware was integrating gift cards to be used on both sites. 
And I'm really proud of the fact that we did this and we were concerned about it. And it was five years ago, actually this month that, that we launched OneWare and we were just like figuring it out as, as we went. And <laughs> as, as anybody working on the project will tell you, this was technologically challenging. Um, but I'm really proud that we, that we stuck in our guns did it because we were concerned of hypocrisy. We actually thought people would call us out for only allowing them to buy new things with gift cards. Um, and yet today, most resale sites operate with the assumption that people will just use their gift cards on, on new things. So I think if the answer is no to any of these, these points, then you really have to consider the resale program as a, as it is it a sustainability program? And I, I would say it's probably not. It's a different business channel. And if that's a business strategy, I think it's a great one. But if it's a sustainability program, it's greenwashing. Because it's not actually, or it's not helping them to lower their carbon emissions at all. Exactly. Yeah. It's not displacing the new production um, of items from the gen by the generation of revenue from e-commerce. That's, that's the hallmark of a sustainable resale program. So I feel like we have talked about a lot <laughs> in a short period of time. You have given people a checklist um, to kind of really evaluate whether the resale program is actually contributing to their sustainability goals or not. But I'm curious if there is any final call to action for anyone who might be listening um, who is running a resale program, who is thinking about launching it at their own companies, um, any advice for them? Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully, hopefully some of the, some of these checkpoints um, are helpful today and they can go read the article and send me an email. <laughs> I'm happy to help there. But I think um, there's a lot of really smart people in this space. And I think if you're already engaged in a resale program and now you're, you're kind of having some set, some concerns, about the sustainability validity of it, like go to your partner. They're they're smart and they can help you pivot this. Like everybody is in this for their, I think their heart is in the right place. And we want to see resale be one of the suite of tools in a, a sustainability programs toolbox, if you will. So um, I think it's about having really open conversations about the goals. And it, it's going to take collaboration between marketing teams that are going to have to support these, these projects, getting them on board early on um, it, at the executive level of setting real tangible sales targets. Um, and then with the sustainability team to understand how this can benefit uh, the brand's um, own progress as well. Thank you so much for joining me on Greenbiz 350 today. It's been a pleasure to chat and learn more. And as I continue <laughs> to cover resale, I'll definitely be staying in touch with you. I look forward to that. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Nellie Cohen, founder of Baleen, a consultancy that is helping companies uh, establish circular programs while also helping drive down their emissions. Last week, XPRIZE and the Elon Musk Foundation awarded $15 million to the first milestone winners in the $100 million XPRIZE carbon removal competition, the largest incentive prize in history. Fifteen teams each received a million dollars and will proceed to the next round, where three winners will share the $80 million jackpot. 
as carbon removal becomes an increasingly greater part of the global climate mitigation strategy, it seems like a good time to take stock of carbon removal technologies. And joining me to do exactly that is Marcus Extivore, the Chief Scientist and Vice President of Climate and Environment at XPRIZE. Hey, Marcus. Hey there. Nice to be with you. So let's start with a little level set. Where exactly are you in the trajectory of this prize? There's uh, 15 winners. And then what happens next? Sure. Well, what happens next is we enter the busiest and most difficult period of the prize. You mentioned there's $80 million still up for grabs. And now is the part of the prize where we want people to just go out there and demonstrate their carbon removal solutions at a modest but hopefully meaningful scale to collect more data to figure out what scales up. And how did you get here? How many submissions? Uh, how did you winnow them down? Yeah, sure. Well, the prize is meant to last four years. And we're just concluding the first year of these four years. So we've got three years to go. We uh, tortured ourselves a little bit by making the first year extra busy. We started out with a student competition, which was open to just proposals by student-led groups. And we had a $5 million prize pool for that. This last week, uh, we've announced the 15 milestone winners, as you mentioned, and that was sort of the second phase of the competition. So if you're following, that means the third phase is the finals. To get to this point, just like with the students, we had a panel of 12 judges, and these are folks from the carbon removal universe. They're all experts in one or another or a set of approaches to carbon removal, and it's these 12 that do all the deep evaluations and make the award decisions. I'll just add that in the milestone round, we had a ton of interest. So we had over 1,100 teams sign up, which means uh, fill out the paperwork and pay either 250 bucks or 25 bucks their students as an entry fee. And then they had to submit on February 1st, an extremely extensive data package. It's not just their proposal, but what data they'd collected so far, scale up plan, cost analysis, life cycle analysis. And because we had hundreds of those for this milestone round, we had an additional 70, 70, what we called expert reviewers. So these folks first reviewed and screened all the inbound proposals, primarily for scientific credibility and rigor. Uh, and then the best of those were passed on to our 12 judges who went deeper on the data, the scale-up plans, the operating plans, the cost measurements, life cycle, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a rough process, big, big group, hundreds of proposals down to our top 60, then finally down to our top 15. And uh, we're trying to share all the information about those teams online because even though 15 are winning money now, there are plenty of fantastic projects and groups in that uh, in that list. So give us a little flavor of, you have uh, divvied them up into air, land, ocean. Uh, give us a flavor of two or three that, that you think sort of typify the kinds of solutions that uh, you think are most promising. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, we, as you said, we split the, the whole universe of carbon removal into four rough buckets. These buckets don't actually mean anything in terms of who wins the prize and how people advance, but they just help us make sure we have the right evaluation metrics and experts in the room. Uh, sorry, the metrics are the same for everybody, but I should say the experts. You know, We want people that are proposing, for instance, to grow kelp in the ocean and take CO2 out of the seawater, uh, which by the way, will then cause more CO2 to flow into the ocean water. So it's not as simple as it seems, but we want ocean experts to make sure they're having a look at that proposal, et cetera. So one idea is to grow plants in the ocean, as I've mentioned, marine aquaculture can have a lot of benefits beyond carbon removal, but it does seem like it may be possible to remove and durably or semi-permanently store CO2. Um, some of the land-based approaches involve either intensive agriculture or biochar, which is sort of similar to charcoal, uh, organic uh, re remnants after the right kind of burning that you can use as a fertilizer. 
and is thought to last a long time, although frankly, there are a lot of questions about how long it lasts. Of course, there are afforestation, you know, replanting trees. We know that increasing the standing biomass on Earth is good and will result in more carbon sequestration. Um, a lot of the emissions we see today are, majority of them are caused from digging up fossil fuels and burning them. We know all about that. But a lot are also caused by deforestation. The natural land sinks, the natural biomass sinks. We're, we've lost some of those over the last generations and a couple hundred years. So restoring that will help with our carbon balance. And then finally, there's a couple of there's a couple other techniques I'll just mention briefly. One of them is called direct air capture. Uh, a lot of people have heard of this. It gets a lot of attention in the carbon removal world. This is like a mechanical air filter or an electronic air filter, manually and physically or chemically taking CO2 right out of the air, and then somehow storing that pure CO2, usually underground in rock. But there's also another technique of using naturally occurring minerals or even mine tailings, which can be reactive with CO2. They also can take CO2 out of the air and then fix it into a mineral rock form that should last a long time. I haven't mentioned too many specific team names there, but in all those different types of techniques, there's one or more teams pursuing a solution along those lines. Yeah, that's pretty pretty varied. But you mentioned some with the kelp, for example, that uh, mm -hmm. there, there is some uh, unintended consequences of, mm -hmm. of bring, you know, bringing more CO2 into the ocean in, the, in this particular case. How do you account for some of those kinds of things? Because we've seen with uh, some of the geoengineering ideas and, and, and even some other just uh, clean technology, so-called, or carbon tech, that there are some, uh, some unintended consequences. Where do they, does that fit into the XPRIZE uh, calculus? It's a great question, and it does. It fits in quite heavily. So let me explain how. So fundamentally, the XPRIZE is a prove-it competition, especially in the final round. It's going to be a just point to your operating carbon removal solution at a modest scale. And the team is going to have to explain not only how it operates and show their performance data, but they are also going to convince the judges that they have a plan or an understanding of how to scale this up to probably the hundreds of millions of ton or even billion ton level, which is what we think the climate relevant carbon removal scale is. Inherent in that is going to be an understanding of environmental risk. We all like to focus on the possible benefits, whether it's ecosystem services or actual local cooling, or also the carbon removal, soil health. You know, these are all benefits that we could possibly get from these solutions. But teams are also gonna have to think carefully about the environmental risks. It's not enough to just say, I'm gonna grow a bunch of kelp near forests. There are decades of, and of experts who have thought carefully about what it means to intervene in an ecology like that and what the downsides may be. In a very oversimplistic way, negative downside environmental risks are not just bad for us and our communities, but they are barriers to scale. It won't work. Ultimately, this can't be scaled if there's a serious uh, environmental flaw there. So fundamentally, it's going to be up to the teams to explain to the judges that they understand what the weaknesses are, and every solution has weaknesses, that they have an idea on how to overcome them, and we are going to have to do some external validation to check their work as much as possible, and then finally up to the judges to make the final call. So what did you learn along the way, and what surprised you? We have learned that people have a lot of ideas that we have never even thought about. So I, when I came into this, I thought of carbon removal as largely playing out in the academic journals as this idea versus that idea, with very few ideas tried at any meaningful scale. And so the competition focuses on like, okay, just somebody show that one of these ideas actually has the potential to scale and maybe actually mean something. So what I've learned is that there are a lot of different approaches to scaling up even what were considered well-known techniques whether it's using mine tailings or mineralizing or director capture, or all the other solutions I mentioned, people are getting really creative in the engineering, the deployment, the implementation side of things. 
And that is great. That's exactly what we need to see. It's sort of moving from science into engineering, if you will. The second thing that surprised me is that, and this is sort of positive and, and negative, but there's a lot more activity that we came across outside of North America and Western Europe than we thought. Not as much as we need it to be. Climate is a global thing. And you know, a lot of climate science tends to be dominated by those regions, which is sometimes uh, not helpful when it comes to the global conversation. And we thought carbon removal would be the same because it's even more niche, it's even more weird and abstract um, and frankly expensive sometimes. But we're seeing a lot of interesting activity in South America, in Africa, in Asia Pacific. I don't want to overplay it. You know, all the data is online. You can see there's not tons of teams there, at least that responded to the prize. But we're seeing more activity in more places. And I think I have a hypothesis. I think it reflects the fact that there are a lot of things that do carbon removal that people don't call carbon removal. So you might call it regenerative agriculture. You might call it fertilizing the field with biochar. If some scientist comes along and says, actually, you're ruining carbon from the air, that's fine. People that are doing it or have been doing it may not think about it that way. So we're also intentional about our language choice. And we've learned that some of the language we use brings people in and some makes people think, oh, this is not for me because they want some kind of tech whiz bang, something or other. So it's always something we're vigilant about, but we're seeing green shoots of more interest and activity in the topic in places that we uh, we hope to foster it. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, I have to ask, did you come away from this more or less optimistic about our ability to... Uh, Take, take on the address the climate crisis in the limited time we have? Uh, that's a good question. I would say I am a little bit more optimistic, um, but I'm not going to kid myself or sugarcoat it. You know, we're in a deep hole here and carbon removal isn't even our first answer. Um, so one thing I'll say is that, you know, carbon removal is not, even though it's getting a lot of attention and it's very shiny at the moment, uh, the number one thing we need to do is use less energy or work on our efficiency or decrease existing emissions as soon as possible. The climate math shows us carbon removal is something we need in the coming decades. And since we're not close to having the capacity we need, even at the modest estimates, it's the time to get started now so that 10 or even 20 years from now, these things could be mature and deployable at scale. So what, they, what makes me optimistic though, is for instance, the student competition, seeing more young people wanting to work on the topic, whether they stay in carbon removal or move into some other area of climate action, I don't really care personally. I'm I'm energized by young people saying, "Hey, I work in XYZ today, but I'd like to change and maybe start working on climate." This is encouraging. So, I'm optimistic in that sense. Uh, we still have a long way to go, but I think it's a one step at a time kind of thing. And we have a long way to go till we have a winner Earth Day 2025. You'll be announcing the final prizes. And we'll look forward to that. Marcus Extivore is the Chief Scientist and Vice President of Climate and Environment at XPRIZE. Thanks so much, Marcus. Thank you very much. Pleasure. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn about the organization's stories and events we've mentioned. And while you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. There's seven of them, and you can learn about them by going to greenbiz.com slash newsletters. We love to hear from you. Your comments, questions, and tips, just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. 